so just have a question for us to fill in the blank. If I could only have more blank, I would be happy. Or a similar question is, if I could only have blank, then I would be satisfied. My life would have more meaning. My life would have more value. I'd be more fulfilled. So from First John, we've been looking at true life for the last several weeks. And so I trust that as we work through this passage and as God enters our prayers that we sang to him, that he will help us with our hearts to value the things that make for true life. So pray with me, would you? Father, meet us through your spirit. Cause us to see the glory and goodness of Christ. Help us to understand and apply your word. Search our hearts with your word and cause us to see and love Jesus more. In his name, amen. So I'm going to read from the last few verses of 1 John, from 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So with verse 18, um, after teaching in the prior couple of verses... A hard teaching that some people who profess to be Christians might actually be on a course of, that leads to eternal death rather than eternal life. And that could shake up the, the people who are recipients of this letter. And so John, as a good pastor, is immediately coming in to confirm for them what he believes to be true of most of them is that they are in Christ. So he affirms several things for them with three we know uh, verses. He first starts out by saying, we know that everyone who has been born of God, that is, everyone who has been given new life through Christ, eternal life from God, does not keep on sinning. We know John doesn't mean that Christians quit sinning, because that itself can be a disturbing statement, because as you think about the past day and week, you probably didn't get through without sinning. If you did, then I'll give you a star sticker for the week. John doesn't mean that Christians quit sinning altogether because he's talked quite a bit about that, uh, that we deal with sin in our lives. Um, Back in chapter 1, he said, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And then he talked about if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Christians very much do deal with sin. So what does John mean? Get a little echo. What does John mean by everyone born of God does not keep on sinning? In the context of what he just wrote and of the whole letter, he means that everyone born of God 
will be overcoming unbelief and sin, be overcoming unbelief and sin, and progressing in faith and obedience. And he's keep, he keeps working through these same three evidences throughout the whole letter, uh, that you'll have true faith in Christ, not perfect faith, but you'll genuinely believe in the truth about Christ. He talks about that you will have true obedience to Christ, not perfect obedience, but you will continue in a course of growing in obedience to, to his word, and that you will love God and his people. And he says that comes as a package. There's no loving God without loving his people, and no, no loving God's people without loving God. So faith, obedience, and love are the three tests or evidence that he has talked about throughout this whole letter. So the one who has life in Christ has these things. But have you noticed how hard it is to keep on overcoming sin and progressing in faith and obedience? Anybody feel challenged by that? Okay, besides Sherry. Anybody? It's true that once you're born of God, you cannot be unborn. You have the life of Christ in you. That's permanent. But that doesn't mean that our faith connection to Jesus is free from internal battles and external attacks. John tells us in this verse that he who was born of God, so now he says now, in Christ, we're born of God. Then he says, he who was born of God. He's talking about Jesus Christ. As the son of God, he has that son relationship, only he's always been the son. He didn't have a start. Except in his humanity, he had a miraculous start in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was created by the Holy Spirit. So, so he's, when he says, he who is born of God, he's talking about Jesus, the Son of God. He protects us. He guards us. He keeps us. And, and the evil one does not touch him. The evil one is the devil. And John has talked several times about the, the work of the evil one. That He says, fortunately, in, in chapter 2, he said that if you're in Christ, you have overcome the evil one. So now John's going to give us more of the reason that we overcome the evil one. It's because Jesus protects us. Jesus guards us. So that the devil, or more likely his delegates, demons, the devil has more big picture things than to follow us around. So he has a lot of help doing that. Uh, doesn't touch us. Now, he means more than a 1990s song by MC Hammer. <laughs> Having cool dance moves in 1990s hip-hop don't keep the devil away. No joke. Bad joke. Bad pastor. Bad jokes. No, the, the devil clearly does harass and attack us. He tries to draw us into sin, unbelief, despair, hopelessness, hard-heartedness, wasting time, all kinds of unworthy things. What John is saying is that the evil one, even when he does tempt and harass us, can't touch what is truly life in us, the eternal life that Christ has implanted into us. He can't touch that. He can make it hard to enjoy and hard to live out, but he can't touch that. He can't do damage. John is saying in short form what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 when he writes, If God is for us, who can be against us? And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul, in that passage in Romans 8, then um, lists several things which Christians experience that may appear as if they could destroy us. 
and cut us off from God's favor. Things that we hate, such as tribulation, distress, persecution, famine. Well, we're not so much in famine here by God's mercy, but those things are real in the world. Uh, nakedness, sword, death, rulers or powers, those are categories of demons. Uh, Paul's point in that text was not that the Christians don't suffer these things, but that when they do, none of these things can cut us off from Christ's saving power and his love. So we can, even to death, be harmed, but not have what is truly life in us be taken away or destroyed. In fact, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So this is John's point when he says that the Son of God protects those born of God and the evil, evil one doesn't touch us. Even when he does his worst to us, he cannot extinguish the life of Christ in us. He cannot destroy our faith and send us on a path of sinning that leads to eternal death. He just can't do that because Christ keeps us. Christ keeps us. He has rescued us from the evil one's grasp, and that leads to what John writes in verse 19, where he says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's the second we know, and what he's saying that we know is we who trust Christ are of God or from God. God has recreated us and given us life in Christ, and so we belong to God. We are God's possession. We belong to him. That's what makes us different from the world, not our good genes, whether skinny genes or physical genes, or where we were born, or what we have achieved in life, but that God has birthed the life of a son in us by his power and by his grace. In John's context, you are either of God or of the world. And by world, by now, if you have been with us, you, you should know the definition of world is not just the physical world, but John means all that is opposed to God and his truth, all that is alienated from God, all that opposes him, all that seeks to distort who he is so as to fit fallen human desires. Thus, John states that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Actually, the, the exact translation of that verse is that the whole world is in the evil one. And it's implied under the control of the evil one. And the, the, the word that the whole world lies in the evil one kind of means it's not really putting up much of a fight. It doesn't like all the consequences, and so it... it it doesn't. Uh, it does fight against some of the consequences, but it doesn't fundamentally disagree with being in the power of the evil one. It's like the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians two: "You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the, this world." What does it mean to follow the course of this world? Why do we do that? Because we're following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, this doesn't mean that all who are not of God but are of the world are as bad as they can possibly be, which is God's mercy, that none of us are as bad as we can possibly be. At least most of us are not, right? It's, it means that they don't have fellowship with God, as John is the purpose of his letter is writing so that we may know how to have fellowship with God. It means they don't have eternal life. 
The devil will do whatever he can to keep them from trusting in Jesus for eternal life. Whether he ensnares them in overt destructive sins or keeps them comfortable in good, clean living, enslaves them in fear or pride, believing whether they believe he exists or not, he doesn't care at all. Just so long as you don't come to Christ and receive eternal life. That's his, he's single-minded in pursuit of that goal. And if you get there, then he's ticked off at you and he, he's a vandal. But he can't steal the life out of us, as John has said. And that leads to verse 20. God's Son, we know, a third we know, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we know that God's Son has come and has given us understanding. Grace gifted us what we lacked. We did not know the true God in our, in our lostness under the power of, of the world and our own sinfulness. We, we had a distorted understanding of who God is. We really didn't know him. And so the Son of God came to, re, to connect us in a relationship with God. The real true God, the real authentic God, Jesus said that eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent, as John records in his Gospel, chapter 17. This means, of course, not just knowing the facts about God, but having a relationship with him, though it doesn't mean less than knowing the facts about God. Just like knowing a person, you know the facts about them, but to know them, you, you know how they think, you know how they feel, you relate to them, but it's not absent knowing the facts about them. So it's both knowing the truth about God, truly his character and who he is, and knowing him, having a, a, a personal relationship with him, a heart-to-heart relationship with him. So that's what Jesus came to do. And that's why John says, and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. We are in God who is true, and in his son, and in is shorthand for a Another common phrase that John has used throughout the letter is to abide. So we abide in him. We live in Christ. He is our life, and our life is in him. We abide in living union with the Father and the Son when we receive the knowledge of God that the Son came to give us. And Jesus is qualified to give the true knowledge of God because, as John says here, he is the true God. Jesus is the true God. He's a man who is also God. And he's not just that, but he is eternal life. So who is Jesus? Jesus is God, and he is eternal life. And so by being in him, we have life only, only in him. This is why we cannot say Jesus is just one of many religious teachers or founders of religion, Because religion is man trying to make his way to God and have a better life. And Jesus Christ is God coming to us and uniting us to himself who is eternal life. Religion is our effort to try to reach God by our own wisdom and strength and religious effort to try to be better. And God knew we couldn't be better. We, We didn't have the life to be better. We needed eternal life. So he sent eternal life through the world through his son, Jesus. Now, John could have been ended the letter there, and you might wish that he did, because he has one more little thing to say to us. 
in verse 21. And the reason he writes what he does in verse 21 is knowing the true God and Jesus Christ who is the true God and eternal life inspires John to close with a warning about false gods in whom is no life. So verse 21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's the seventh time in John's letter that he refers to the recipients as little children. He cares for them, and because he cares for them, he's giving them a final warning. And the warning is, keep or guard yourselves from idols. I remember in reading this in past years, I kind of thought, it almost feels like, oh, by the way, keep yourself from idols. And a lot of people just think it's almost a random comment. It's like, what a way to end a letter. Like, couldn't you say, love John? Actually, he's communicated love quite a bit, but... So, some wonder, where did that come from? And, And as I've camped in this letter for the last several months and thought about where John is going and where he's, what he's communicating, I thought it's really the most fitting ending he could give us. So what is an idol? It is a singer in a musical competition who gets the most votes. That's an American idol. There are more idols in America than that. Well, the first commandment, let's just go to the first and second commandment, shall we? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, right on the heels of that, says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven or earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The Apostle Paul, in talking to the Athenians back when, said we ought not to think God is like an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So what is an idol? It's a false god. It's an image or object worshipped as God or in the place of the true God. Living in a secularized culture that we live in, many people think worship is something only that religious people do in a religious place. So idols don't have anything to do with them. And even people in, in Christian churches, because they think idols, idolatry is little statues, and they don't have a problem with that, and they don't think they have a problem with idols. So we need to do a quick overview on why everyone worships the true God or a counterfeit God. So here we go. God created us. We didn't create ourselves. So far, so good. God created us. We did not create ourselves. So we're by very nature dependent on God for life. But we are not strictly biological creatures in spite of what some strands of science say. God in his love and goodness designed us to know love and delight in him. He created us in his image to reflect his likeness. We worship God because he is the ultimate supreme glory and goodness, which is our greatest good and highest joy. We are hardwired to worship what, what we perceive to be full of excellence and worth devoting our lives to. And the ultimate of all of that is in God. And so we were designed to, to know him, to worship him, to love him. 
Sin didn't destroy our desire to worship the one who is ultimately good and glorious. Sin distorted God's design that we seek and savor him as ultimate glory and goodness. Sin didn't destroy our desire to seek God for our satisfaction, our security, our stability, our significance and meaning. Sin distorted God's design that we would seek him for our ultimate satisfaction, security, and significance. Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods, which if you're really into learning all there is to know about idolatry, read Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods. It says, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything you seek to give to seek to give you what only God can give. Many, if not most, of our idols involve taking good things and making them into God things. Valuing God's gifts more than or in place of God the giver of all good gifts. It is worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator, rather than thanking God and enjoying them for his sake. It's, it's also, we want a user-friendly God whom we can control to produce the goods that we want. So I, I've shared this illustration before, but when I was in India, uh, one time when I was in India, there was a, uh, close to where I was staying, there was a, a, a shrine to the monkey god. And I asked, what does the monkey god do for you? What, because they're bringing food and flowers and stuff like that. So said, well, we seek his favor to, to get, keep our children healthy, our marriage is good, and prosper our businesses. And so we like user-friendly gods that we, okay, here's my God. I, I, can, get, I can see him. I can touch him. I, I can contain him. I can press the, this button, give, insert these things, and get out of God what I want from him. It's time for a Lord of the Rings illustration. So, yeah, sorry. I've been putting it off. Uh, in the Lord of the Rings, the Dark Lord Sauron's ring of power corrupts anyone who tries to use it, however good his or her intentions. The ring is a desire amplifier. It's a desire amplifier. Which takes the heart's deepest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportions. Some good characters in the book want to liberate slaves or preserve their people's land or visit wrongdoers with just punishment. These are all good things, but the ring makes them willing to do anything to achieve them, anything at all. It turns the good thing into an absolute that overturns every other allegiance or value. The wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it, for an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it, and therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored, to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. Idols are spiritual addictions that lead to destruction, both in Tolkien's novel and real life. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that if you lost it, your life would hardly feel worth living. 
It has such a controlling position in our hearts that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. With decreasing satisfaction that you keep needing more and more of to get the same level of satisfaction. It can be all kinds of things. Receiving praise, a reputation, or social standing. It can even be family and kids. It can be secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, even success in Christian circles. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, or we can call it what it really is, idolatry. We give thanks to God for his good gifts. Don't, just don't let them take the place of God in your life, whether the relationships, activities, or things. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel secure. My life will have meaning. Then I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant. The the question is, what is your functional Savior? What is your functional Savior? What functions as Savior and Lord in your life? Really? The very things upon which people seek to build all their happiness will turn to dust in their hands when they seek a good thing as if it is a supreme thing. The demands of that idol will override all competing values, but counterfeit gods always disappoint and often to our destruction. So how can you identify what may be idols in your life? How can you discover what may be the idols in your life? Well, one question, there are four questions. What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in your life? In other words, where do your thoughts usually go when nothing else is occupying them? These are not things that, if anything answers this question, it's necessarily an idol, but it could be the path to discovering what your idols may be. Secondly, where do you spend your money? We sacrifice, without question, money to our idols. Third question is, how do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? We all get disappointed when we don't get what we're praying for, but if, if it sends us into the deep end constantly and leads us to long, prolonged depression and anger, that can be... a an idol behind that. Fourthly, what are your most uncontrollable, painful emotions? Which ones almost never seem to lift? And which ones lead you to do wrong? Fear? Anger? Despair? Are you so afraid of not getting something or losing something that it leads you to sin or to be paralyzed in depression and anger? The bottom line is, what person or thing rules your heart's trust, fixation, loyalty, service, delight more than Jesus Christ? 
really, it's, this is the question. What do you love most? So, how do we keep ourselves from idols? Does John leave us hanging? Because he just says it. No footnotes. Here's how to be freed from idols. It seems like he thought that his, his uh, recipients would, would get it and know what to do. I think if we follow what John has said throughout his whole letter, it, it, it helps us to overcome idolatry, or at least sets us on a path. As John told us his purpose for writing in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he said, the reason I'm writing to you is so that you may have fellowship with us as biblical apostolic Christians and fellowship, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It is in fellowship with God, knowing God, trusting God, treasuring God, the Father and Jesus' Son, which is connected to fellowship with others who have fellowship with God, that our joy may be complete. We find fullness of joy. He doesn't mean we have completely perfect joy in this life, but that we have what makes for true joy fellowship with God and with his people in this life that will be fulfilled completely in eternity. This answers two of the main attractions to idols. Idols offer counterfeit fulfillment, which only a living union with God, that is fellowship with God in Christ provides, and the happiness that we wrongly hope idols to provide, we truly find in the joy of fellowship with God and his people. Now, John has not been saying that living in fellowship with God is just a mystical experience that comes in spiritual retreats, like you've got to meditate yourself into some state of mind. To... That's not it at all. It's expressed first and fundamentally by clinging by faith to Jesus Christ as Son of God, trusting and treasuring Him above all things. Jesus Christ as Son of God come in the flesh, who because of His death for us forgives and cleanses us from our sins including idolatry. Actually, especially idolatry, because you could see that as a root of all other sins. The reason I covet is because I don't love God as my supreme treasure. The reason I commit other sins can be idols driving that. The gospel sets us free from idolatry. In other words, abiding in Christ confessing our sins to him because we know that he loves us and cares for us and he does cleanse us from all of our sins, purifies us. Keeping his commandments. It's, it's what his word says to do. Uh, if I'm continually not obeying in a certain area, that's a pretty good indicator that there could be an idol behind that because I, I have a greater loyalty to something else, some other value that I'm drawing from not obeying God than obeying God because our highest joy is when we obey him out of trust and love. Fellowship with God means not loving the world in the way that John defines it, the desires of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. Fellowship with God involves loving one another, knowing at least someone else in the body of Christ well enough who can encourage you and help you labor with you in prayer and overcoming idolatry in your life. praying with confidence, all of this independence upon God's spirit. This sounds like a lot of hard work. Uh, it's, it is discipline. But what you love and are passionate about, you willingly pursue and sacrifice for, right? 
Idols demand sacrifices to our destruction, decreasing joy and depleting life. Jesus calls us to the heart work of abiding in him, resulting in increasing joy and constant renewing of life. This means keeping Jesus central and supreme in our hearts. Just as you must do to keep your marriage, if you're married, your marriage healthy. You, you forsake all other loves. You need discipline. You need commitment. You work hard at it because you love the person and you value the relationship above any other human relationship. It means keeping Jesus first in our hearts. Keep praying, keep repenting, saturate your minds with his word. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. He is our true life. Any other loyalty is idolatry. So I'm going to pray, and then we will have a closing song, and join me as I pray. Father, We confess our hearts are idol factories. And we need your grace constantly in Jesus, through your spirit, to lead us out of loving anything more than you. We thank you, Father, that in your great mercy, you know our struggles and that Christ's saving work and his death and resurrection are sufficient to rescue us from all of our pollution of idolatry. Forgive us, cleanse us, show us where we have loved other things more than you. We've looked to things and even people to be in the place of you for us and it's so easy for us to do. But thank you, Father, that Christ is enough he is our life. We long for that day when we will see him in full. And but until that time, may we be so certain that Jesus is our life. He's, our, he is our, he's the true God in eternal life. We praise you in his name.